This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, a very good afternoon to you here, Wednesday afternoon, as usual, nine minutes past two, coming to you live from the studios here at High FM. It is Judaism 101.9. Just the other day, we had a bar mitzvah in our shul. And at the bar mitzvah, there were several people who clearly were not from the Jewish community. And um, overhearing some comments uh, between a couple who was sitting quite near me at the time of the bracha of the Kiddush, it was quite interesting to hear a uh, non-Jewish take on what goes on in our shuls. Um, uh, not all of it, I suppose, could be taken as being that complimentary. Um, there were comments about the fact that it, it had a warm atmosphere. Well, that is wonderful to hear. Um, but then going on to speak about the fact that everybody um, has a chance to catch up on the latest gossip, on the latest news. Uh, people behind me uh, were talking about all sorts of stuff. And um, they were really saying it in a complimentary fashion, uh, talking about the fact that everybody feels so at home. And so I thought that today, being that, of course, we are now well and truly into the three weeks and time when we are focusing on and thinking about mourning for uh, the destruction of not one but two Bate Migdash, two temples in Yerushalayim, which comes up in just under three weeks' time. But now we're in the throes of these three weeks, Bein Ametzorim, when we're talking about period of time between the 17th of Tammuz, when the walls of Jerusalem were pierced, and um, then the Romans went on to destroy the temple um, all those thousands of years ago. Um, perhaps it is an opportunity, a chance here on Judaism 101.9 to review a little bit uh, some of the things that we should or shouldn't do in a shul, behavior within a shul. And uh, perhaps to take you through, if we may, some of the stuff may seem to be very, very uh, trivial and some of it may seem to be um, very um, I don't know what the word is, a little bit uh, dogmatic in uh, some way. But um, how are we supposed to behave in a shul environment? And are all shuls the same or <coughs> do some of them have special rules? If there is a place that is uh, sort of the old style shul with the fixed pews, is that very different from the atmosphere in a shul uh, that has mov- movable tables or chairs? Um, and is there a difference um, between one community and another? So perhaps what we'll do today is just explore some of the kind of, let's call them golden rules, um, without being too trivial, without trying to be uh, too prescriptive, but uh, to think a little bit about how we behave in our shuls and what kind of respect do we show and what kind of respect do we teach our kids um, when they come into that space and they see um, and they're obviously going to learn from the attitudes and the atmosphere that is created by the elders and by the parents um, in, in the shul kind of an environment. So let's begin with the fact that um, a shul is a sacred place. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate going around lately, uh, people talking about um, the uh, Western Wall and um, what kind of um, atmosphere there should be at a place like that. Well, obviously, the Western Wall representing our Beit HaMikdash, our temple, gives us a tremendous amount of um, idea um, from the original as to how behavior should be, how we should behave in that kind of an environment, what the attitude and the atmosphere should be in that type of an environment. 
I'm always inspired by the idea that um, people have, and uh, to open with this idea, um, that uh, in a shul there is part of our uh, well-founded Jewish tradition that when we um, are kissing the Torah or the idea of kissing the Torah rather is really and should be the only thing that we do kiss in a shul. In fact, there's an old tradition that um, children should not be kissed in a shul. In a shul environment, you don't pick up a child and uh, kiss the child. And the reason that our sages give is that in the shul environment, the only sacred thing that is kissed should be the Torah, the Torah itself. Um, we are teaching our children, therefore, a great and a wonderful value of the fact that in that kind of an environment, um, the only real um, lauded, praised, and kissed item is a Torah, is God and godliness. Um, how can we then um, kind of lower our standard and kiss each other in that type of environment? Now, there are many people who are going to argue and going to tell us that that's um, sort of very old-fashioned and that uh, really pertains to a classical um, uh, Beit HaKnesset, a cl- classical synagogue that was set up primarily and only for prayer and that uh, really shuls of today, most shuls of today, um, are a kind of a combination um, it's not only a place of prayer, but it's also a Beit Medrash. It's also a place of learning, which has different kinds of rules. Or it could also be a type of a social gathering, a social sort of a place where, by the way, um, we also have a part of the time there where we pray, where we daven, where we have our prayer services. And that, therefore, perhaps all these types of rules um, shouldn't really filter through and they shouldn't actually be applied in our modern kind of a shul environment. However, um, where else and how else are we going to impart to our children? How are we going to teach our kids um, the type of um, reverence that they should have when they are in a holy space and the type of things that are okay and the type of things that are not okay in that kind of a space? And I think that it is very good that at least we have some kind of an understanding of the standards that we should be setting and the things that we should be doing in that type of an environment in order to be able to lead the way and in order to be able to set the examples that we should be setting for our children. One of the things that um, we do a lot of, unfortunately, in schools is um, that we spend quite a lot of time chatting, chit-chat, talking. Um, now, perhaps um, we could fairly and squarely lay the uh, blame and the fault on the rabbis, on the chazonim, on the uh, choirs, on the community and so on, that uh, the service is not a lot more interactive, that it's not m- a lot more participative um, or whatever your uh, pet peeve may be with the way that the shul is conducting its services and is running. However, one of the things that um, is very, very clearly written up in Jewish law, in halacha, is the fact that in a shul and when people are davening, when we're praying to God, those should be the only words that are uttered. To be speaking, to be spending time conversing with the person next to you or the people around you is not only disrespectful to God, but it's actually disrespectful to them uh, for the simple reason that um, they have clearly and maybe you might think differently, but they've clearly come to shul in order to pray, in order to spend some time 
in conversation with God, um, in trying to open the channels of communication between themselves and God to uh, thank God for something, to plead for something, um, perhaps just to praise God for um, a great and wonderful uh, week that he gave them. Let's say that it's on a Friday night in shul. And you steal that moment from them. You steal that time from them. And it's rather um, inconsiderate to be sitting and chit-chatting to the person next to you thinking that they're on your level and thinking that because you did it last week or the week before um, and it seemed to be quite fun um, <laughs> and sort of a bit of a social event. However, uh, and, that, and that therefore you're actually just carrying on the conversation, doing them a favor, it is rather um, um, unkind and it's rather unfair and it's rather uh, disrespectful to that individual um, to take away the moment or the moments that they may have um, in order to spend some time speaking with God, in order to spend some time reading through the Siddur, the Chumash, whatever else it is that they have in front of them. Um, don't steal that moment, not from yourself and not from them. Um, besides the fact that um, there is an element of plain um, decency where we have a bit of disrespect that we are showing to the environment, to the people around us, as well as to the chazan, the choir, or even the rabbi. You know, um, it's not unusual. I guess many of my colleagues will tell me um, that by them it is absolutely unusual because everybody sits um, spellbound when uh, we rabbis talk. Um, but certainly in my in my community, clearly I don't have that kind of an influence. And it is a little disrespectful when people speak while you are speaking. I often use the line which was taught to me by my late father, that my late father taught that um, you should not speak when somebody else is speaking and therefore I'll keep quiet for a bit and allow you to finish your conversation and then I'll carry on. Well, it usually works uh, for a moment or two, gets a little bit of an awkward laugh. However, it is a very, very true um, idea that doesn't really only pertain to a shul environment, but pertains to any environment. When somebody is speaking, you should keep quiet. When somebody is addressing you, um, whether it's a lecture, whether it's a class, whether it's a drosha in shul, whether it's a <coughs> shiur that you're attending, or whether it's just the person who is speaking to you um, in the store or at your uh, coffee date, um, you should keep quiet. And we are teaching our children, unfortunately, rather bad behavior just of a general nature when we spend a tremendous amount of time talking to the people around us in shul. We'll be back with you right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi, welcome back. Yes, we're talking about behavior in a shul, behavior in a shul environment. So um, we've been speaking a little bit about the idea of not speaking in shul, but perhaps to move on a little bit, some of the uh, positive behaviors. We mentioned one, um, that is that the Torah should be the only thing that we kiss in shul. Um, but the kind of respect that we're supposed to show for the Torah is something that um, goes way beyond that. There are many people who believe or think that um, everything that um, we do, or the only thing that we need to do in a shul is to run over and to kiss the Torah when it passes by. Well, in fact, there's no obligation to actually kiss the Torah. Um, the idea of kissing it is 
obviously a great sign of respect, but it doesn't have to be that we actually kiss it. And on the contrary, the halacha tells us, Jewish law tells us, that we are supposed to accompany the Torah. We're supposed to accompany it, walk a few paces with it in a kind of a procession that sort of shows the Torah's royalty um, when it is taken out of the Aron Kodesh, when it's taken out of the Ark and it is carried to the Bima, or when it's returned from the Bima to the Ark. Um, at that time, we should form part of the procession. And, of course, then it's kind of developed, I guess, that people reach out and kiss it. Um, I'm not sure where it developed the idea that people reach up into the uh, the air and kind of point with a finger and kiss the finger. Um, it seems to be that um, we should rather kiss the Torah directly um, through something. We don't ever touch the parchment itself, but if we touch the cover, the mantle um, of the Torah, that can certainly be kissed. But walking with the Torah, accompanying it, this is a sign of respect and a sign of that royalty. But then by the same token, we've got to be careful that we do not turn our backs on the Torah. Now, it's quite easy to turn your back on the Torah if you think about it. If you've walked up as part of the procession in the aisle and uh, then you're going back to your seat, um, the natural inclination of a person would be to turn around and walk away. It is good Jewish tradition to stay facing the Torah for as long as possible and not to kind of give your back to the Torah at any um, uh, stage because at that stage it would be deemed, it would seem as though you're literally turning your back on the Torah, and that we certainly don't want to do. Um, back to the idea of talking in shul, we should not talk all the time that the Torah is out of the Oren Kodesh. Um, yes, while it should be a general principle, a general rule, that we shouldn't have any kinds of discussions uh, during the service per se, or any other time of uh, the prayers or of the droshes and so on, but particularly when the Torah is out of the Oran Kodesh, when the Torah is out from the moment that it is taken out until the moment that it is returned, we should show the kind of respect that um, we should have if um, God himself was in the room, so to speak, that we are focused, that we are attentive, that we are not engaging in trivial conversation. Um, yes, there's nothing wrong with giving somebody the page. Um, there's nothing wrong <coughs> with pointing out where we are or uh, that the gabai or the rabbi or whoever it is announces um, where you're going to be able to find the haftorah and if it's a special haftorah for that uh, particular Shabbos and so on. Um, all of those things are quite okay. However, engaging in idle conversation, chit-chat and so on at the time that the Torah is out is regarded as highly disrespectful. And once again, I'm concerned about the fact that we are um, teaching our children um, a lack of respect for things that are holy, for things that are sacred, uh, particularly for the Torah. It needs to be revered um, in um, all senses. And of course, uh, by showing that we can control our um, need to confer, our need to talk and so on is uh, of paramount importance. When we think about um, a few other things uh, that pertain to the Torah itself, um, we know that uh, when a person is given an aliyah to the Torah, when you're called up, um, one should walk up to the bima, to the Torah, by the shortest possible route. 
and walk down by a longer route. So in other words, to walk up, if you're sitting on the um, right-hand side, you would not walk up from the stairs on the left-hand side or vice versa. You go up from the closest side and um, you go down from the opposite um, side of the bimmer. Um, in other words, once again, showing the dearness, the nearness and the um, affiliation with the Torah, the fact that we want to be close to it and the fact that we want to get there as quickly as possible. But that leaving is difficult. The departing from it is hard. Now, if you imagine or just think about in that simple rule, the kind of message that we are giving to children, that kids, that people around us um, learn just by that kind of a behavior, it um, ingrains within the participant, it ingrains within the child, it ingrains within the student. The concept and the idea in a very, very real fashion that it is so much part of us that we understand that this is something that we've got to do um, in order to show a, an affiliation, a nearness, a love and a respect for the Torah um, <coughs> in the way that we accede to it and the way that we descend from the bimah after we've had that um, aliyah. Of course, all the time that we're in shul, that we're in a uh, shul environment, we should keep a yarmulke on. Now, once again, um, we need to try and um, get our – that's, of course, for the men, the guys. Right? The women are supposed to cover their hair as well. Um, when Once they're married in a shul environment, supposed to be perhaps all the time, but at least in the shul environment, it has become a little bit of a, a – misused or unused um, kind of a uh, an ideal um, that uh, women of old used to have a little bit more I think that when you go to shul that you would wear a head covering and there's nothing wrong with that and it should be done it should be encouraged but guys are supposed to wear a yamulka a yamulka should be worn from a child of aged three upwards um, all the way through of course um, everybody should wear a yarmulke head covering and of course this is a sign from a Jewish point of view of modesty the fact that um, we're not taking pride in our latest hairdo or hairstyle or gel and so on but we're um, quite um, keen to demonstrate and to show that in front of God we are modest that we are uh, lacking in or diminishing in that ex extended uh, display of pride of arrogance of self-centeredness and that is actually what the yarmulke represents of course it represents the fact that there is something and someone a God above us and um, the idea that there is something on top of me I am not um, the ultimate boss I am not in charge it's not all about me and once again filtering through um, a message to our children um, and to, to those who we are trying to raise in the correct and the proper fashion that um, there is a discipline and there is an authority and there's a higher authority a higher being there's a creator above us who um, we show that ultimate respect to and it's not all about me it's not all about uh, my uh, prow pride or my prowess but rather about um, um, an affiliation an idea and a subservience to God and to godliness if we think about um, shul behavior and we extended it just a little bit more, um, perhaps we could think about and talk about the times of coming in and out of um, the shul. Um, well, here we have a few rules, a few important things that you may or you may not know, and that is um, that at certain times it is incorrect to be walking around in the shul. Well, you, this is usually the time when the community is standing up, kind of facing forward, um, either engaged in the private Amida prayer 
or engaged in the first part of the repetition of the Amida when we're saying something called Kedusha, the Kedusha prayer, um, which is said as a part of our Shachrit and Mincha, as part of our Musaf as well. So it would be said a couple of times on Shabbat and so on. And perhaps um, if you're not sure exactly what that is and when that is, if you do see the whole community kind of facing the front, everybody standing and uh, sort of focused on um, the prayers that they're saying in their books there, you probably have uh, met up with or come into shul at the time that you shouldn't be walking around, that you should not then be trying to find um, a talus, a siddur, uh, moving through and sort of bumping people out of the way. But rather wait until everybody has sat down because um, essentially at that stage, everybody is supposed to be standing and focused um, on the front and focused in uh, attentively to uh, the prayers that they're saying. And therefore, at that time, um, don't enter into the shul, don't walk around and certainly don't engage in conversation with anybody. What about um, greeting people in shul? You know, there is an old tradition. Um, that seems to have crept in in many, many places that um, when you arrive in shul, when you come into that space because of the warmth and the friendship and so on, um, aptly pointed out by those visitors to my shul um, just a few days ago, um, we have this warmth and this love and this uh, extended friendship that we show to each other. But there seems to be a newfound um, over um, emphasis on that, and that is that you've got to make a big spiel um, about greeting uh, your best friends, giving them a hug and a kiss. Uh, warm embrace, uh, wanting to know the details of their past couple of days or weeks um, that you hadn't seen them. Um, and in fact, um, when we come into shul, particularly before we have uh, spent our time praying, um, it seems to be a little bit of the wrong way around. We've come to shul um, to greet God. Um, the people should take second place and we should kind of perhaps temper that a little bit. Although in a modern world, it is viewed to be a little bit um, ungentlemanly or unladylike if you don't warmly greet the people around you <laughs> um, and then um, get to greeting God. Um, actually, we should set the tone correctly in a shul in that kind of an environment, difficult as it may be. Um, yes, you can nod. You can give some kind kind of an acknowledgement to the people around you. But first things first, we've come to shul in order to acknowledge God, in order to pray to Hashem, in order to spend some time in uh, a holy uh, Kedusha fashion. Um, the people can wait a little bit. We should greet people warmly, of course, afterwards, um, spend some time in conversation after the davening, after the service, there's plenty, plenty time. Always, um, why take away from the praying time, either theirs or yours, um, in order to spend time engaged in conversation and in greeting and in uh, warm catching up on uh, the holidays, on the on the trip overseas or whatever else it is that you may or may not have been involved in. So, um, another little rule there of how we just get that message filtered through to our kids of the fact that um, this is a different kind of a space. This is a place where we um, observe and where we greet Hashem before we greet other people, before we greet everybody else. Um, there are so many different uh, ramifications of this kind of behavior and this kind of a tone that we are supposed to set. But just another one or two that I'd like to point out. Um, when the community reaches up to the Shema Yisrael, when they come to that uh, verse, which is usually said aloud by most people, covering their eyes and so on, um, 
if you have just arrived, if you've just pitched up in shul or you are at a different part of your prayers, invariably you need to say that together with the community. It's regarded as being um, spiritually infradig. It is not correct to avoid saying that together with everybody else. Um, and the same thing would go for the Aleinu prayer, the Aleinu Shabayach that is said at the end of the service. Um, of course, as pointed out before, probably one of the oldest prayers in the Siddur, um, the prayer that was said um, and composed, we are told, by Joshua, by Yeshua, at the time of the advent of the Jewish people to um, Israel through the conquest of Jericho, of Yericho, that the people were uh, marveling at their great strength and incredible power and he needed them to come down to earth a little bit by pointing out that this was something that God had done. We need to give praise to the Almighty who has uh, seen to it that we should be triumphant. Um, the Aleinu prayer is something that we should also make sure that we say together with the community, even though we may not be up to that spot or we may already have said it, um, it is something that needs to be done together with everybody else. So there are a few pointers like that and you may not necessarily know exactly what they are and where they are um, perhaps it's a good opportunity and a good idea to find out those things that need of necessity that need to be said together with everybody else and uh, therefore you don't want to look like never mind the great ignoramus um, or not know what goes on in the shul kind of uh, attitude but rather to have some very very clear directives and direct uh, pointers as to how you are supposed to behave and what you're supposed to do in a shul environment. Um, there are a number of other very, very important features of um, shul attendance and of being involved in the kind of in the shul environment um, that would warrant um, some some kind of a mention as well. The idea of um, sitting in the same place, you know, it is a tradition that uh, Jews. Pick a place that they feel comfortable in shul or they have a seat. Now, we don't have to be as go as far as having our names on the seat and being absolutely um, strict on the fact that nobody may sit in my seat. It's not really about nobody sitting in my seat, but it does uh, tell us in Jewish thinking that we should always try and pray in the same place, not only in the same shul, in the same kind of environment, but even within the shul. We should have a, a preferred spot there. Um, I guess the er origin of this is the idea that we should um, not have to be walking around finding a seat, but rather we know exactly where we're going, that we are in that kind of environment quickly and that we're not distracted. We're not then having to see if um, the bench works or if the uh, if the cubby ho opens or if um, there's a sitter there and so on, but that we're kind of comfortable in that environment that we've been there before. We know the um, the 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 look of it. We know what's to our right. We know what's to our left, and we can quickly settle in to our prayers. So, a couple of other important pointers, and we'll be back with you right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. So we've been talking about various different behaviors and techniques and things that we're supposed to bear in mind in the way we behave in a shul kind of an environment. I thought it particularly appropriate during these three weeks. But there is a question that has come through and the person has asked, if a person is about to come out of Shloshim, is the no shaving rule extended by a further three weeks? 
Um, well, it may not necessarily be by a further three weeks, but I get your drift. You're talking about if somebody comes out of Shloshim during these three weeks, is it extended until the end of uh, Tisha B'Av or the day after Tisha B'Av, in fact, um, which would be the 10th of Av? And the answer is yes, um, unfortunately, Um while it seems to be a little bit of a longer period, um, we cannot take haircuts. We cannot shave um, during the three-week period. However, I would suggest that you do have a discussion with your own rabbi um, because there may be certain extenuating circumstances um, such as um, business that may be affected by it and so on. Um, but uh, discuss it with your rabbi. But the general rule is that during this period of time, even if that one does come out of, and some people keep it just for Shiva or sometimes uh, out of Shloshim, that in fact you enter into a period of time when we are not allowed to. We're not permitted to shave and cut hair on a regular basis. And um, therefore, if we want to be strict about it, we should wait until um, after Tisha B'Av, which is uh, three weeks from yesterday. Um, just to carry on with our um, concepts that we've been discussing about um, shul behavior, so I think that you've um, hopefully got the drift that I've been trying to put across, which is that our behavior in shul is something that is actually a an important learning curve, an important teaching mechanism um, for our children. And it's not just about um, shul behavior, but it's about dignified behavior in a general sense. It's about, and um, to some this may seem to have been very trivial and um, absolute common sense, yes, but unfortunately today it seems that um, we've got to spell out common sense. Um, it's not all that common uh, to have this kind of sense um, and understanding of um, how we are supposed to behave in certain circumstances and how we're supposed to be, and therefore uh, not necessarily getting it from me as the yardstick, but rather taking some rules and regulations, some ideas that were conveyed to us by our sages, some uh, parts of halakha, of Jewish law, and so on, and thinking about the deeper teachings and the deeper ideas and ideals that they convey. Um, is it not a very, very important um, teaching mechanism uh, for behavior for our kids. You know, uh, we cannot expect our kids to respect authority or respect an environment or respect um, public property if we don't. And when we come into a shul kind of an environment, if we're prepared to stand kind of with our foot up on the chair, um, which we certainly wouldn't do um, in our own homes on our dining room suite, um, what kind of a message does that send to our children? So the kids see that, and uh, the next thing, if they're defacing or uh, breaking a window or whatever, why are we surprised? If uh, we come into a shul kind of an environment and we're disrespectful um, by the way that we behave, that we um, that we talk, that we're loud, that we are um, um, not on the kind of most appropriate shul type of behavior um, at the time, how do we expect our kids then to not only behave correctly in that environment but in all environments where there should be a uh, type of a discipline or authority or respect whether it's for teachers or for headmasters, headmistresses, or for anything else that uh, may be deemed authoritative and you would want your kids to behave in a certain fashion. So all of these things really are perhaps deemed to be common sense. Perhaps some would regard them 
as being things that you know anyway, and what are we carrying on about them for? Well, I think that it's a, a very important part of a kid's upbringing that they have that kind of a feeling and they have that kind of an atmosphere and attitude that is displayed not necessarily only by the powers that be or the people in charge or the authority or the rabbi or the chazan or the uh, the shamus or whoever it else it is that uh, is uh, tasked with laying down the rule and the law within that kind of an environment, but that in fact it is something that is incumbent upon each and every one of us, each and every one of us as parents, as um, adults, as um, therefore leaders within our own environment and our own um, standing that we need to know that this is a way that we need to behave because we're setting an example that others are going to imitate and our children are going to grow up um, not knowing any better as to how they should behave. Um, Back with you right after this. This is Judaism 101.9 with Rabbi Michael Katz of Elovo. Hi and welcome back. Yes, just summing up our uh, idea for today of uh, shul behavior, of the way that we behave in shul. Well, uh, some would want, and uh, somebody has said here, perhaps we should uh, do a little bit of this on how we behave, not never mind in shul, but how people behave at the brocha, how they behave at the kiddush. Well, if you think about the fact that um, in this country we call the little meal that we have immediately after um, davening, um, most places around the world call it a kiddush, time that kiddush is said. Um, in South Africa, it's best known as a bracha. I think that perhaps it comes from the fact that on Shabbat, um, we... Um, we don't have enough brachot to be mashlim, to complete the hundred blessings that we're supposed to say each and every day that each Jew should target and try and say because um, we are saying shorter prayer services. You know, we have 19 prayers said uh, three times a day in our amidas, and that goes a long way to make up the hundred brachas, the hundred blessings that we're supposed to say every day. If we think about on Shabbat, there are a lot fewer of those blessings that are said. We don't say the 19, and therefore we need extra blessings. So perhaps the concept of a bracha is the opportunity to uh, spend some time before we actually sit down and go to the meal of eating all sorts of different foods on which we're going to be saying separate brachot. We're going to say a blessing on the cup of wine. We're going to say something on a piece of cake. We can maybe say something on a fruit and then uh, something on a, uh, a vegetable that perhaps we will eat and so on that we get to different brachot. So it's quite a nice word, I think, that we call it a bracha. It's a time, maybe it's called, it should be called a brachot. It's a time for saying blessings. Uh, perhaps that's where, that's where it comes from. We've got to remember that therefore the bracha of the shul should have some kind of a sanctity attached to it as well. And of course, uh, there is a peculiar kind of a behavior that people have when it comes to a bracha. It seems to be that uh, we're starving. And eaten, of course, for well over two to three hours and therefore um, are in dire need of uh, some sustenance, can't wait to get to the bracha, to have uh, whatever we can have and people go a little bit wild in uh, having to reach there, um, grab a seat, uh, push people out of the way. Um, and you see all sorts of um, unpleasant behavior, actually, at most brochas around the world, in most environments. We've got to remember that it is a holy, sacred kind of an environment. We've got to teach our kids there, too, that uh, food is not everything, that grabbing is not uh, the way that it should be. We should stand back and wait until Kiddush is said. Uh, before we actually pile our plates, we've got to make sure that we um, are 
dignified first and that we are behaving correctly and properly and well um, for our children to be able to follow that kind of an attitude and atmosphere um, because it is really a very important bracha. It is a very important blessing, not only for us, but for our children and for the future that we're trying to blaze a special trail for them to be able to follow. So hopefully we've um, learned a little bit today and be able to share some ideas um, with you about shul behavior, about dignified behavior, and hopefully through our dignified behavior and the attitudes that we display, we'll be able to bring up children who will uh, certainly be able to turn the, um, the future into one that is bright and rosy and wonderful and hopefully we will merit during these days to uh, be deemed worthy of God giving us the ultimate of all shuls, the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, the third temple, which we hope and pray for now more than ever before um, and uh, with the advent of Mashiach, may he come speedily in our time and we wish you a great Shabbat up ahead, a great rest of the week and look forward to being back with you again same time, same place next week on Judaism 101.9